Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, turn to the book of Haggai. That's a real book. It's not like the old joke, you know, uh, the book of Hezekiah, which isn't a real book of the Bible. No, Haggai is a real book of the Bible, and that's what we're going to be studying today. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Haggai. I believe it's the third book from the end of the Old Testament. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great book, and we're not just going alphabetically. Yeah, I realize we just preached Habakkuk. Um, earlier last year, in the middle of last year. We're not just going alphabetically. This really is a good book for us to be studying right now. Um, Everybody probably knows that as the new year comes in, it's the time when people are most likely to sign up for gym memberships that they might use once or twice throughout the year, or to to start a diet that, you know, might stick for a a couple weeks. Uh, That's right, it's that time of year when we start making resolutions, right? Uh, And as such, I figure that it's as good a time as any to start a new book study, and Haggai is actually the book uh, that we'll be studying for the next few weeks. And this book is appropriate for this time of year, the time of year when people are making resolutions and uh, all those types of things, because Ultimately, Haggai, the book of Haggai, is about a people who lost their sense of priorities. And the result is that the people sinned greatly against God. And this study seems fitting because this is the time of year when we are most likely to examine our priorities, right? Oh, last year my priority was such and such. Well, not this year. This year my priority is going to be something different. Consider this, though. As we begin, the number one reason that resolutions fail, the number one reason that people don't live up to their New Year's resolutions is because whenever, whatever change they're trying to make doesn't fit into their top priorities in life. They know that they should do something, but it's not a priority. Basic human psychology tells us that we tend to do whatever we do, whatever we're whatever we're doing at any given moment, because we're constantly seeking the most satisfaction at the lowest cost. When our resolutions go toe-to-toe with the deepest longings of our heart, the longings of the heart are going to win every single time. And this is why we sin, because in any given moment, whatever we set our heart on is what we're going to pursue, is what we're going to do And we set our hearts on whatever it is that's before us, thinking that it's going to give us the most possible satisfaction at the lowest possible cost in that moment. And the book of Haggai is about a a people who become too fixated, too concerned maybe, with their own sense of satisfaction. And it had cost them dearly as their pursuit of satisfaction in life, which isn't a bad thing, but their pursuit of satisfaction led different ways which prevented them from fully experiencing the blessings of God. And the book of Haggai is kind of unique in the sense that in most of the prophets, the the prophet will cry out for the people to repent, to turn from their sin and, and come back to God, and they don't do it. But the book of Haggai, uh, the, the message that he preaches actually results in people responding with heartfelt repentance and obedience unto God. So 
almost everything that we know about Haggai comes actually from his book. He's kind of obscure. We don't know a whole lot about him other than what we learn from his own book. He's probably uh, already at least in his 70s when he wrote this book, when the book begins, based on the fact that in chapter 2, verse 3, uh, it seems to indicate pretty strongly that he actually saw the original temple before it was destroyed, before, uh, before it got conquered, before it got taken down. And this book was probably written by Haggai himself. I'm going to just assume that it was written by Haggai himself. Sometime shortly after the remnant of Israel was brought back to Jerusalem, after the exile, after King Darius's decree in year 538 BC. So we start the book off with this. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I find that as like, something like that as the first verse of a book, I'm always kind of tempted to just kind of skip through it, to to glance over it, but not really take it in. Uh, But try not to allow yourself to do that. Try not to fall for that temptation because there's a very real purpose to this verse being here. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for correction, teaching, training in righteousness, right? And this is no exception, This is no exception. This is a very important verse because it tells us when it was written and it tells us, maybe more importantly, it tells us that this is real. This is real history. This actually happened. You know, if you're making up a story, you don't add dates. You don't add specific dates, specific names, and all these little details that most people are tempted to glance over. No, that that actually adds to the reliability of it. It tells you that this is a real story. We see King Darius elsewhere in the Old Testament. For example, we see him in the book of Daniel. And we know that he was a Persian ruler. And although 50,000 Israelites had returned to Jerusalem from exile, this was a time when the Persian Empire still ruled the land. They still ruled over the Israelite people. The Persian government, specifically King Cyrus, had given the Israelites permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the people went back to build the temple totally psyched. They were excited. It was something that they went back to doing with a lot of enthusiasm, and they did it right away. They started working on the temple right away. And there was undoubtedly you know, great excitement as they anticipated the opportunity to resume worshiping God the way that they and their fathers, or some of them at least, the older ones and their fathers once had. However, the excitement and the zeal that they initially felt was met head-on by their neighbors. We read this little story in uh, Ezra, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. I'll just read it to you. If you have your Bibles open, though, you might want to put Ezra 4 in your margin. Ezra 4, 1 to 5 says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you. 
Oh, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So their neighbors come in and say, you know, we, we worship the same God you do. Why don't you let us help you build the temple? And when they say no, we see true colors come flying out. Oh, you're not going to let us help. Well, we don't like you worshiping your God very much. And so they do everything that they can to intimidate the Jews and to intimidate all the people who were building the temple. And so looking down to the end of that chapter, we then read in verse 24, then the work on the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And that's where this book begins. That's where Haggai begins. As the result of this compromise that they reached with their neighbors, the Israelites left the construction, the reconstruction of the temple unfinished. And what started off with what might have looked like a nice little compromise quickly led to disobedience on behalf of the Israelites. At least they were postponing obedience. They were saying, well, we're not going to maybe do it now. Maybe someday we'll we'll do it. We'll we'll re-examine. We'll come back and examine when, when might be a better time. And postponing this obedience to God led to neglecting their duty unto God altogether. Now, history tells us that the second year of King Darius's reign was in 520 BC, and this is when the prophet Haggai started urging the people on God's behalf. He would plead with them to wake up from their state of spiritual apathy, to get their priorities straight, and to start being obedient to God and what he had instructed them to do. And we see here that the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. Not through his mouth, at least not at this point. That is, the word of the Lord came through what Haggai would write. It's the same thing that God continues to do with us today. His word comes to us in the pages of Scripture, and it urges us to do things like seek first the kingdom of heaven. That is, get your priorities straight. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your life looks like. It doesn't matter what you do for a living or what your circumstances might be. When we do not have God as our uncontested top priority, all of our priorities are going to be out of whack. And we cannot experience the same type of intimate fellowship with God that we could if we had our priorities straightened out with God uncontested as our first priority. Like us, the people of Israel all too easily failed to get their priorities straight and to keep them straight. As a result, they they loved 
gratification more than they loved godliness. They sought compromise instead of strengthening their commitment. They sought satisfaction over submission to God. They were pressured by their neighbors who didn't know God, who didn't love God, who didn't worship God to abandon their zeal for God. And friends, this is exactly, this is exactly what we are faced with in our culture today as well. The world is pressuring us with the idea that faith is meant to be a private and personal thing and our kids are getting indoctrinated more and more into this belief in our own public school system. And so this, the culture around us is saying, you know, what? why don't you just tone down your faith a little bit? You can, you can have your faith, but, but don't bring it into the classroom. Don't bring it here. Don't bring it there. Keep it in your church. Keep it in your home where it doesn't bother me. And there are even many within the church at large who are calling for us to compromise with the world. So for 16 years, the people of Israel in Haggai's time decided to compromise with their neighbors, decided to compromise with those who felt threatened by their faith in God. But they didn't stop building the rest of Jerusalem. They didn't stop with construction on the other parts of the city. Oh no, we're about to see that construction continued everywhere else. And the people built these beautiful and luxurious homes. They built businesses. They built everything back up again. And it had become a normal, healthy, prosperous city once again. That didn't make their neighbors feel threatened. Isn't that funny? Here they're, they're gaining wealth, prosperity. They're, they're building a comfortable living for themselves. Neighbors don't feel threatened. Worship God. Oh, neighbors feel threatened. But as life went on peacefully and productively after the compromise, the people of God forgot about and lost their focus on the most important thing in life, worshiping and obeying God. And so this is what Haggai writes. This is what he writes to Zerubbabel and Joshua, verses 2 to 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Of course, he's talking about the temple. The Israelite people had kept themselves busy, kept themselves productive, building everything except a place to rightly worship God. And the plan was to put it off until... Who knows? Until later. We'll we'll just come back and we'll we'll re-examine the situation later. How much later do they plan on putting it off? Who knows? But they had put it off for what appears to have been an indefinite period of time. There was no plan in place to finish the temple. If they were asked about it, their answer was, Uh, the time hasn't come to rebuild the Lord's house. All right, so this is Family Sunday. We've got some kids in here. So this is a question for you kids and everybody who's ever been a kid. (laughs) Has there ever been a time when your parents have asked you to do something and instead of doing what they've 
asked you to do, you, you put it off until later. Has anybody ever done that? <laughs> yeah, we've, we've all done that, haven't we? And how many of you ha- have done that and then you never came back and did what your parents asked you to do? Now I could ask all of you. <laughs> yeah, we've got some hands that need to be raised here, right? Now I could ask you guys individually, uh, wh- why did you put it off? But ultimately, the answer is the same for every single one of us. The answer is the same. Whenever you put off obedience to your parents, it's because you had something else to do. You were doing something else. You had other priorities or maybe you had other obligations. Maybe there were other things that you decided that you would rather do first or maybe there were other things you felt like you you had to do or, or could do first. And so you put it off and maybe you come back to it, to what you were asked to do, or maybe you don't. It's not uncommon for us to put off or altogether ignore the idea of being obedient to God and to pursue what we have our minds set on, our hearts set on, to pursue our own desires instead of God's desires. As one commentator says, quote, the willingness to postpone obedience or disregard it altogether has been the marker of the human race ever since Eve's initial transgression. At the root of this sin is the nastiness of pride, the belief that our wisdom and preferences are greater than his, end quote. Now, maybe we wouldn't quite word it that way ourselves. At least not with our lips. I mean, it's, it's pretty rare, unless somebody's just being really honest, that we would admit, well, I'm, I'm putting off obedience to God because I think my ideas are better than his. Usually you're not going to hear that. Maybe if somebody's being completely honest and repenting, they, they'll admit that. But usually that's not something that they will admit with their lips. But what do their lives say? What do our lives say? See, whenever we put off or postpone being obedient to God. Whenever we sin, that's the message our actions are sending. That our ideas, that our desires are the right thing and they're better than God's ideas of what we should be doing. And this is what happened with the Israelites. They had other priorities. They had other things that they felt like they needed to do They needed to pursue peace with their neighbors. So they put off what God wanted them to do, which turned out to have been the very thing that should have been their top priority, their first priority. But instead of being obedient to God being their first priority, living peacefully with their neighbors, building homes, building prosperous businesses, for themselves. These things all became their priorities. And whenever obedience to God becomes less than our top priority, everything else is out of order. Everything else is misprioritized. See, it's not a bad thing to live at peace with the neighbors. You might say, well, what's, what's wrong with having peace with the neighbors? Nothing necessarily. 
but it is a bad thing to live at peace with our neighbors when the cost of that peace is compromise, compromising our faith, compromising our obedience to God. See, it really is a matter of priorities here. In the New Testament, Paul tells us to strive to be at peace with everyone insofar as it depends on us. Does that mean that we should pursue peace with everyone? Absolutely, yes. Does that mean that we should pursue peace with everyone at any cost? Absolutely not. It's good to have peace with our neighbors. It's good to get along with people. But if the cost of getting along with the neighbors, if the cost of getting along with people is being less than obedient or less than faithful to God, forget it. Kids, let's say that somebody at school says, okay, you know, we, we, we can get along fine as long as you never wear blue. That means you can never wear Seahawks jerseys, by the way. What do you think, kids? Is that a good deal? Good, okay, no, it's not a good deal. Of course it's not a good idea. And likewise, if peace with our neighbors means being disobedient or unfaithful to God, we must not bend the knee to such demands. We must not compromise our faith or our obedience to God. You see, the willingness to put off or to ignore or to to just postpone being obedient to God reveals a a very serious problem, a deeper problem that's, that's very, very serious because it's symptomatic of a heart that doesn't perceive God as the greatest treasure or as its top priority. That's ultimately the problem. God's not the priority. So the Israelites continued to go on with life casually and successfully from a worldly perspective. The city of Jerusalem was at peace, but the cost, the cost was compromised faith, compromised obedience. If they were asked about returning to build the temple, they'd say, it's not time to rebuild the temple yet. Everything else is going great. We've got other things that we got to do. The time isn't now to rebuild the temple. And so the Lord comes back to them and he gets a little bit snarky with them. And I love it when God gets snarky with his people. And he says to them, okay, is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses? Haggai's desire, the Lord's desire through Haggai was for the people to examine their priorities and to see, just to see if obedience to God was a greater priority and a greater concern than anything else. Think about the scene when Martha invited Jesus into her home. That's a good thing to do, right? It's a good thing. And and her sister Mary, she was there too. And Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. And she's just she's taking in everything that Jesus says. She's worshiping at his feet. But what about Martha? We read this about Martha, Luke chapter 10, verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Is it bad to invite somebody into your home? No. Uh, Is it bad to serve guests when they come into your home? Absolutely not. But Martha was so busy working and serving that she got distracted. Distracted from what? 
Listening? Yeah, she got distracted from listening. Learning? Yeah, she got distracted from learning. But ultimately, Martha was distracted first and foremost from worshiping Jesus. See, here's the thing. Listening and learning are acts of worship. That is worship. Worship isn't just singing a song. Worship is turning your heart to God. And hopefully that's what you're doing right now. Listening to a sermon is an act of worship. So hopefully that's what you're doing right now. Only you're not worshiping me. You're turning your hearts and your minds to God and thus worshiping him. See, God desires for us to live at peace with our neighbors. He desires for us to work, and he desires for us to be productive with our lives. But how many of you know that your work is also intended to be an act of worship? Your work is intended to be an act of worship. God designed us to work. He designed Adam to work and to worship. And those two things are far from being mutually exclusive in God's sight. He doesn't want our work to distract us from worship. He doesn't want anything to distract us from worship. Rather, he wants our work to be a means of worship which is, I think, the concept that Paul was getting at when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And then he says in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. So whatever your situation might be, whatever your circumstances might be, no matter where you are, when you're stuck in traffic or when you've got no traffic and you've got the ability to go 80 miles an hour, Paul's saying, do it all for the glory of God. Can you break laws for the glory of God? Just something to think about. Can you work for the glory of God? Kids, can you apply yourselves in school for the glory of God? That's the way it was meant to be done. That's the way God wants you to do it. The point is, whatever you do, wherever you might be, whatever your circumstances are, Don't fall for the temptation to compartmentalize or segregate your life. So you've got your your life of faith here, right? And then you've got the rest of your life here. And you keep it separate. That's not the way our lives are meant to be lived. They're meant to be lived with complete overlap so that everything we do is for the glory of God. Everything we do is an act of worship unto God. And when we compartmentalize our life, when we, when we segregate our lives, it's very, very easy to put off or to ignore being obedient to God. And it's very easy to not have him, not keep him as our top priority. Now you might say, Pastor, that's easy for you because you are a pastor. Listen, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pastor, yes. I also run a full-time business on eBay. I also have a wife. I also have two kids and two dogs. I have all the things going on in my life that you guys have going on in yours. And all these things are competing for my heart. 
They're competing for my attention. And so I know, believe me, I know the struggle to keep God as my top priority. I know it's not easy for anyone, whether they're a pastor or or not. It's not easy for anyone, but it becomes a lot easier when we learn to perceive God as the greatest treasure and the greatest pleasure. If I'm successful at keeping God as my top priority at all, it's not because I'm a pastor. It's for the same reason as anyone else who's successful at doing it. It's because honoring and obeying God are my top priorities in the moments when I'm successful at honoring and obeying God, just like anybody else. If you're successful at it, it's because he's your greatest treasure in that moment. And so Haggai is pleading with his audience with the same message that I am pleading with you. Keep God as your top priority and do not compromise on that. Don't compartmentalize your life. In everything you do, live for the glory of God. Live and act for the glory of God, keeping him as your top priority. So Haggai decries their paneled houses you might ask, well, what's a, what's a paneled house? Well, the Hebrew word for, for paneled implies a high degree of comfort. In other words, there, there's, the, these homes aren't being built. They're built. They're settled in these homes. They've already been established. They've been established for some time. And so we have to understand that Haggai isn't condemning them for living comfortably, He's condemning them for becoming so comfortable with their living situation that they forgot about God. And thus they left the temple in ruins for over 16 years. So see, they they hadn't just, it's not just a matter of postponing the construction of the temple for 16 years. They had put off being obedient to God for 16 years. They had lived in disobedience for 16 years. They probably wouldn't have admitted to that verbally with their lips, but their lives and their lips told two totally different stories. How many of you guys know your actions speak louder than your words? Right, kids? Ever hear of that? Mom and dad ever tell you your actions speak louder than your words? It's true. It's true. Haggai continues, verses 5 to 7. <clears throat> he says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So this passage, as you probably just caught, is marked by bookends a repetition of a phrase at the beginning and at the end. Consider your ways. And whenever there's repetition, it's because the author wants us to see something that's important, something that's central to what he's trying to say. Consider your ways. Haggai's pointing out how the people had thought that they could live peaceful and satisfying lives. But instead, in the long run, what they found is that they were completely unsatisfied by what they had. 
They pursued all the things that they thought would give them the greatest and the easiest pleasure, sense of satisfaction, sense of happiness, and neglected the very thing that would actually give them the greatest satisfaction. And we do the same thing, don't we? All the time. We do the same thing. That's, that's the temptation to think, you know, if my life only had this or if my life only had that, my life would be so much better. That is coveting. Let's just be clear about that. That is coveting. And ultimately, it's an expression of distrust and discontentment with God. It's saying, you know, if I live by my rules, if I do things my way, I'll be happier. If I do things my way, I'll find more satisfaction in life than I would if I live in accordance with God's will and the things that God has provided me with. And Haggai reminds his audience and us that this type of thinking is wrong. And so Haggai is basically instructing them to examine themselves. To examine themselves. To look at their lives and see the emptiness that they find as a result of having their priorities out of whack. The conclusion, the point that he's ultimately pointing them toward is that their level of satisfaction in life, their sense of fulfillment in life is directly correlated to the degree of obedience that they have toward God. He's not saying that nobody should sow. That represents working. He's not saying don't sow. He's not saying that you know we shouldn't eat or drink or clothe ourselves. He's not saying that we shouldn't save money. What he's saying is that these things can't be a, prior, a priority that's higher in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds than God is. Can work become an idol? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, no question about that. What about food? What about drink? What about clothing? Can those things become idols? Sure they can. We can seek satisfaction in all of these things and hold them as a higher priority in our hearts than we hold God. What about money? Can that be an idol? You think? Yeah, the Bible warns us extensively against the heart's tendency to make money into an idol. And Haggai says, that's like saving money in a bag with holes. That's a beautiful picture. In other words, what he's saying is, no matter how much money you have, it's never going to satisfy you. It's never going to give you an ultimate sense of fulfillment in life. It'll never bring you the pleasure. It'll never bring you the fulfillment that living your life for the glory of God will bring you. Because you can always have more money. Let's say you have a bajillion dollars. Well, then along comes a guy with a bajillion and one dollar. And your sense of satisfaction is decreased. You can always have more and more and more and more and more. And it will never be enough to give you a truly deep sense of satisfaction. Again, it's not that money is bad. It's that it can be bad. And it very easily becomes bad when it's not held in its proper place. When it becomes our first priority in life. 
Haggai wanted the people to see the connection between their lack of obedience unto God and their lack of satisfaction in life. See, our desires, the things that we long for in our heart, they lead to actions. And our actions have consequences for good or for bad. Our actions don't just occur in a vacuum the same way that branches don't just occur without a tree trunk and a root. Our actions don't just occur randomly. There is a driving force behind every action. And that is the thing that we set our hearts on above everything else in that moment. And the principle that Haggai is getting at is that if you want perfect and complete satisfaction in life, you need perfect obedience to God. Now, if you're examining yourself as I say that, maybe you start thinking, man, I I can't do that. I can't be perfectly obedient to God. That is the only correct conclusion that any one of us can reach. We are incapable of the perfect submission, the perfect obedience that God requires. He is holy. He is perfectly sinless. And fellowship with him has to mean that we have to be perfectly sinless too. Why do you think God gave us so many commands? It's not a challenge. I'll just say that much. It's it's not a challenge. It's not saying, hey, let's see if you can do this. No, it's to show us. You can't keep all of my commands. You can't. There's a greater chance of you going out and lifting a three-story building over your head than there is of you living in perfect submission to God. And the more that we realize that, the better. The more we realize that, the better. Because once we realize that, we realize that on our own, we stand hopeless before God. We see our sins as what they really are. There's something that's a hindrance, something that has separated us from a holy and just God. And we realize that all we deserve is separation from him. All we deserve is a full serving of his wrath against our sin. And this all points us to our desperate need for someone who will stand between us and God, someone who can be a mediator between us and God, someone who was perfectly obedient to God and who would take the wrath that we rightly deserve upon himself. And this must bring us to the realization that that's exactly what God has provided. A perfect, flawless mediator. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to bear the wrath of God that our sin has rightly earned us. He literally, Jesus literally took the sin of his people upon himself while he was on the cross And in exchange, he imputed his perfect righteousness to those who would place saving faith in him. Our passage today reminds us that just like the Israelites, at some point or another, every one of us is guilty of making something or someone 
a higher priority in our hearts than God is. But it also reminds us that God made redemption possible for those who would place saving faith in his son by sending his son to stand in our place as our legal substitute, our mediator between us and God. So where do we go from there? Where does Haggai go from here? He continues, verses 8 to 11. He says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. So first Haggai instructed them to examine themselves. He said, consider your ways. Examine your lives before the Lord. Perceive the disobedience. And now he's asking for a different course of action. He's asking them to consider what they will do now that they are aware of their sin as they examine themselves. And he's calling them to a very specific course of action. He's saying, consider your ways. See how you have disobeyed. And once you see that, repent. Repent and obey and show the fruit of legitimate faith. People have all kinds of different ideas about what repentance is. Some say it just means changing your mind. I think it involves that. But biblically speaking, it always goes beyond that to changing more than just our actions, but, or more than just our minds, but also our actions. As one commentator notes, quote, he says, throughout scripture we see this pattern. Heart change leads to behavioral change. God expects our behavior to change, but he is clear that behavior is simply a reflection of the heart. When our hearts change, our behavior follows. End quote. And this is why David said, as he was repenting, create in me a clean heart, O God. He was asking for forgiveness, but he was asking for more than just forgiveness. He was begging for help. He was praying and begging God to help him change his ways, and he knew that at the root of his sin was ultimately the sinful desires of his heart, the affections of his heart, the things that he desired, the things that he pursued more than he pursued and desired God. The repentance that Haggai is calling the people to starts inwardly with self-examination, and then it's expressed outwardly. Starts inwardly, it's expressed outwardly. He's not just asking them to acknowledge their sin. He's not saying, why don't you just admit it? He's saying, turn from it. And to start living their lives for the glory of God as they should See, this all goes much deeper than just the surface level. It's not just a matter of bad behavior. He could have just said, you know, why don't you guys just act right? 
and skip the whole part about, you know, consider your ways. He could have said, you know, why don't you just do this? But ultimately, I think he knew that it would be to no avail because he's talking about changing our hearts and straightening out our priorities, seeing what's wrong and replacing it with what's right, knowing that anything less is just behavior modification. It's not heart and life transformation. As we start out the new year, friends, I implore you to resolve to live your life for the glory of God this year and always. And you do that by keeping him as your top priority in life. Let his place in our hearts be uncontested by anything, uncontested by anyone else. As A.W. Tozer once wrote, he said, as God is exalted to the right place in our lives, a thousand problems are solved all at once. End quote. Friends, the reason that resolutions are so often short-lived is because all too often they are nothing more than lip service. But God wants more than a resolution from us. He doesn't just want behavior modification. He wants heart transformation. He wants to be the desire of our hearts, the greatest desire, the greatest priority in our lives. So let us bring him more than a resolution. With the thought in mind that the joy that we feel in life, the satisfaction that we feel in life is directly correlated to obedience we must understand that the greatest joy and the greatest treasure to be found in life is Christ. Is Christ. So let us fix our hearts and minds steadfastly on him, the image of God dwelling in human flesh, the one who literally stood in our place bearing the wrath of God against our sin as the perfect example of un yielding obedience and submission to God and whose image God is molding us into right now, today. As we look to him, as we look to Christ, and as we are more and more conformed to his image, we'll learn more and more to live our lives in joyful, obedient submission to the will of God. And that's where the deepest sense of satisfaction is found. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, knowing that all of it corrects us, rebukes us sometimes, teaches us to live for you. And so we thank you for this little-known prophet named Haggai and the message that he brought. And we ask, Lord, that as we examine ourselves, that we may see you as the greatest treasure, the greatest treasure to be pursued in life. Teach us, God, not to segregate and compartmentalize our lives, but to live every moment for your glory as your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.